Now, you're watching this sermon because you and much of the rest of the world is on lockdown. Now, let's do a pleasant thought experiment. So let's imagine that at some point today, your phone blows up and then starts scrolling on whatever show you're watching is interrupted by an urgent service announcement. And it's Dr. Fauci who you see his bright smiling face and he is celebratory saying, we've done it. We found the cure. We've created the vaccination. We, um, the cure has been created. And here's what you have to do. How much encouragement do you think you would need and the rest of the world would need to follow along his prescription? If he came on and said, all right, here's the three things you need to do. You need to get this, then do this, then follow that. How much encouragement do you think we would need to follow along? Probably not very much. If you ask any doctor, they will tell you that one of the most frustrating things about practicing medicine is getting patients to actually follow the prescriptions that they give. In fact, in Jordan Peterson's book, 12 Rules for Life, his, and he has a fascinating study that um, one third of the people who receive a prescription from a doctor don't even have the prescriptions filled. They don't even fill them. And then of the other 67%, half of them do not follow the prescription as it was prescribed. So they'll stop, stop taking the medicine too soon. They'll take too much. They'll miss doses. They will kind of riff and do their own thing. And one of the tragic comedic aspects of that chapter is, and, and the surveys and studies found that people are often more consistent in administering medication to their pets than they are to themselves. Why are people so bad at following a prescription that's meant to lead them to health? But I guess, doctors, if you think you have it bad, that's probably nothing compared to how God must feel because he's actually given us the antidote to anxiety. He's given us the prescription for peace, and yet most people in the world just ignore it or they try and riff off it and do their own thing, or they miss doses or think they can ignore his prescription. And what we've seen the last couple of weeks, and I've been amazed, I didn't intentionally plan this, but I've been amazed at how all these psalms in this section around 27, 23, uh, we're going to look at 24 this morning. So if you have your Bible, open up to Psalm 24, and the best way you can um, engage is to have it open and to follow along. Because in Psalm 24, we actually are given, given the Lord's prescription for peace. How we, how we can be a people who are free of fear. And in Psalm 24, there's going to be three things that we're given. We're given um, the perspective we need if we're going to experience peace and overcome fear. We're given the prescription that we have to follow if we're going to experience peace and overcome fear. And then it tells about the presence that we will experience. So there's a perspective, there's a prescription, and then there's a presence. So let's look at the first thing in verse 1 and 2. Um, this is the perspective that we're going to need 
that if, if we're going to overcome fear. So the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and the world and those who dwell therein. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So if you're going to be free from fear, this is the perspective you need. And the perspective begins with the affirmation that the earth is the Lord's. It is his and all the fullness thereof. The earth is his. And the world, the flesh, the devil are all trying very hard to deny this reality. They're all trying very hard to force you to forget this reality. One of the most potent weapons in the arsenal of evil is for you to forget these things or for you to minimize this reality and say, okay, okay, the earth is the Lord's. Well, that's a little much. That's going a little too far. God, if he wants, he can have his place, but it's a small place. You know, Christianity is okay for those who have been brought up this way. They are either uh, backwards or from the backwoods. Um, God can have his place, but it's small. But if you're going to be free from anxiety, then you have to uh, embrace the joyful reality that the earth is the Lord's. And this for Christians should, should fill us with joy. And the fullness thereof, it, the earth displays how generous he is, his fullness, his abundance. And uh, for any sci-fi fans, I was about to say in the room, but I'm the only person in this room. So any sci-fi fans in your room, um, you know, one of the common themes in sci-fi is you'll often see we're going to colonize the moon and we're going we're gonna to bring life to the moon or to Mars. And you look at the pictures and it's so hard and cold, and desolate. And then you compare that to something like the earth. There's just no comparison. The earth is teeming and exploding with fullness. And actually, one good way to tune your heart to this perspective is maybe sometime over this break. I mean, watch Planet Earth or one of those documentaries that'll just help you marvel at the fullness. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. But not only is the earth the Lord's, but notice the people, the world and all those who dwell therein. The people are the Lord's as well. So you see these pictures of just kind of um, the world teeming with humanity, and God is not up in heaven wringing his hands and worrying about the logistics of how he's going to feed all of these people. You actually get a window into the heart of the Father when you see Jesus, when he sees the mass of people following him, and it says he had compassion on them. His heart was moved because they were helpless and harassed. They were like sheep without a shepherd. The earth is the Lord's, but so are the people. And this perspective is so soothing and comforting to his own. This is the good news that Christians rejoice in. We rejoice in the reality that I am not my own, but I've been bought with a price. See, we don't give way to that, that silliness that wants to try and stand and claim with all of its pomposity that I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And see, we understand that if we were the captains of this ship, we'd crash it in a heartbeat. And so we are thankful that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and all the people therein. It gives us a security. 
So the first thing that you need if you're going to have the antidote for anxiety is that you have to have a perspective shift where you enter in and delight in the reality that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness, its abundance. This is an abundance mindset. That's the perspective we need. But then in verse 3 through 6, notice he gives us the prescription that we have to follow. Verse 3, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? This is the most important question that any human can ask. Who will ascend the hill of the Lord and enter into his presence? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So, The key here, the key prescription for peace is entering into the Lord's presence. That is the central thing. That is the one thing. That is the heart of the matter. And the whole Bible is the story about how God is making a way so we can enter back in. The whole Bible is about how the tragedy of Eden and the fall is being reversed and repaired. He's going to make it possible for us to dwell in his presence again. We will dwell with the Lord. And so the question here is, how can you enter into his presence? And what it's going to do, this psalm, actually, in harmony with the whole rest of the Bible, gives us a picture of what worship is. All real worship is an ascent up the hill of the Lord into his presence. That's one of the reasons that we have structured worship the way we do at our church is trying to mirror and walk through that ascension. You're ascending the hill of the Lord into his presence. The New Testament kind of paradigm for that, you can think of the transfiguration where Jesus is going to call the three, Peter, James, and John, he calls them apart, and then they rise up, and then they have this encounter with him where he's transfigured, and Moses and Elijah is there, and his face shines, and it radiates. And so this is the image of what it means to enter into the presence of the Lord. We ascend his hill. This is the one thing that David sought in Psalm 27, to see the Lord's face. And this is the sole reason that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. Why? Because the Lord is with me. We are with him. We are in his presence. So what is required to come in? Look, you will see three things. First, the personal integrity. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. This is personal integrity, clean hands. Now, this isn't talking about clean hands. They had no conception of germs, so it's not clean hands because you've washed it in Clorox uh, uh, to the tune of happy birthday 42 times. This isn't the kind of clean hands it's talking about. This is uh, a metaphor, symbol, clean hands. It's a metaphor of two things, your work and your convictions. Clean hands, it represents your work or your life. Everything you do with your life all that you do, all that you make, all that you say. It's a metaphor for all of your activity. But it's also a metaphor for the things you hold, what you grip. You know, we talk about how we hold beliefs, we hold prejudices, we hold opinions, we hold on to memories, we hold on to habits. Clean hands is the totality of everything that we do and we believe. 
But then the second thing is pure heart, a pure heart. So purity of heart is going beyond just the deeds that we do or the things that we say, but into the desires and the drives that motivate us. See, this first personal integrity is pointing to a person of complete and total uh, integrity, both internal and external. And then notice the second thing is spiritual integrity. He who has clean hands and does not lift up his soul to what is false. Does not lift up his soul to what is false. What does that mean? I'm glad you asked, and you're in the right place to find out. Just keep looking, because Psalm 25 actually is a whole psalm that describes what it means to lift up your soul. And look at 25.1, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I put my trust. Do not let me be put to shame. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. See, to lift up your soul uh, means it, it's, it's the thing you're looking to, to set your heart upon and your hopes upon. You set your heart and your hopes on this thing. And so what this means is spiritual integrity where you do not set your heart and your hopes on the things that are false, on the things that are vanities, or on the things that can't endure the weight of your hopes and your worship. See, when it says the things that are false, it's not necessarily talking about things that aren't true. It's talking about also things that weren't designed to bear that weight. And one of the scary things for us is we actually don't know what we've set our heart or our hope upon until it's threatened or until it's taken away. And see, at every age and every stage, we are tempted to set our heart and set our hope on something. Now, it's actually a lot easier to look at people in other ages and other stages and see the falseness of their hope than it is to look at ourselves now. So actually, let's do another little experiment. So let's try this. See, every single person in their life has either had something, someone, or some situation that they've set their hope on and it hasn't been able to bear that burden. Like every nine-year-old has had some type of toy that they so desperately wanted, and then they finally got it, and then it wound up being sent off to goodwill. Or every, every one of you has, has had something in your life where it was like, these were the sneakers that if I got, they would elevate me to the cool kid table. And you got them, and they didn't. So what I want you to do is take a moment and talk to the people around you. Everybody pick out one thing in your life that you can remember that you set your hope on and it didn't come through like you thought. So did you have something? Everybody has something or sometimes it's someone and it's often easier to see it in another. 
So for example, the 15 year old girl is now all of a sudden is in love with Jojo and she comes and tells her dad all about Jojo. I can't wait for you to meet Jojo. He's so strong and so sweet and so smart and oh goodness gracious dad. Uh, and if you just, if you just knew him or would give him a chance and uh, you know, we even use phrases like she worships the ground he walks on. And you might think, yeah, Jojo's a wonderful guy, but he will make a very lousy God. And I don't care how strong he is, his shoulders aren't big enough to bear the weight of your worship and carry the weight of all of your hopes. His shoulders aren't, and neither are the shoulders of your 401k or your employer or any other thing that we're tempted to place the weight of our hope upon. This is spiritual integrity, where your trust and your devotion are directed to the right person and then put in the right place. And then the third thing in verse 4 is social integrity. So look at uh, the final thing, and does not swear deceitfully. He does not swear deceitfully. And what that means, that's not talking about somebody who just doesn't use bad language. To swear, uh, to swear deceitfully means that your words can be trusted. There's a harmony, full, total integrity. Um, this, this is all about being a, a person of total integrity, internal, external, spiritual, physical, and with words and deeds. So what this means, and Jesus is really going to press this home on the Sermon on the Mount. So in a couple weeks, whenever we gather again and whenever we're able to continue in Matthew and walk through the Sermon on the Mount, this can get really uncomfortable if you allow his searing and searching words to have their way with you. Because to be a person where your words, um, uh, where you're a person of integrity with your words means not only do you say what's true, that's, that's kind of a given, but it means that you don't paint, you don't use your words to paint with false colors or shades. And we are so tempted to use our words to shade things that are a little brighter than they should be, or shade people as a little darker than they could be. And to be a person of integrity with your words means you don't paint a picture of yourself as better than you really are, more capable, more competent, smarter than you really are, working harder than you really are. And then you don't shade other people to be worse than they really are, to be less intelligent, less competent, less capable, uh, capable than they really are. And see, if you look at these three things, if you look at the demands for spiritual integrity, personal integrity, and then social integrity, all of us should feel exposed. All of us should get to the point where if we really examine these, we come to the place where we say, if you, O oh Lord, kept a record of wrongs, who could stand? Because we all feel this is the prescription needed to get in his presence. But then we look, well, who's able to accomplish this? That's the question. It's not done. In verse 5, you see the result. And notice the result is that if you do these things, you'll receive. But I think it's really important to notice that first uh, there's the negative, 
but the negatives are always given to make way for the positives. So there's a couple things you don't do. Take these things out. You do not swear falsely. You do not lift up your soul. But the point of taking those two, those things away is so your hands can be free so you can receive. Those are the points of God's, um, those are the points of God's thou shalt not. You do not do these things so you will receive. Uh, you receive blessing and righteousness in verse 5. He will receive the blessings of the Lord. So what's blessing? Let's think about that for a second. Uh, in this context, you need to think about blessing as um, increase, fullness. It's the idea of abundance. So blessing is the idea, um, it's the opposite of the feeling you get when you feel like everything you do, all of your energy, all of your effort is just futile. You're not accomplishing anything. It's what every mother of toddler toddlers feel when they feel like everything I'm doing to try and keep this house clean and orderly, there's somebody who's going around joyfully doing the opposite, undoing everything I'm doing. That's a sense of futility that nothing is, a, is being accomplished. It's not fruitful. And so blessing in this context, um, you can see, like, think about when um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob says that they were blessed. Like Isaac, on his crops, they, he had a hundredfold blessing on his crops. He didn't have that because he was a superior farmer. He had that because the Lord's hand of blessing was on him. It's the idea that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. It's that you will not labor in vain. But it's also the gift of righteousness. And some of your translations might say vindicated. And so this is the idea that you've been set right. You've been vindicated, proved to be right. Um, it's also the idea that everything is functioning as it should. It's unfortunate for us because we have a, a cold view of righteousness. But the, the righteousness of the Lord is one of the most beautiful things you can have and experience in life. It's the beauty of everything working as it should. All of life is harmonious. And what happened at the fall in Genesis 3, there was the four great brokennesses. We experience brokenness with God brokenness with ourself, brokenness with others, and brokenness in our, in our world. And the righteousness, the gift of Christ's righteousness, is that he repairs and restores all of those great relationships. So the relationship with God is renewed and restored. Relationship with self, renewed and restored. Relationship with others, renewed and restored. Relationship with the world. And the gift of righteousness is living with all of these things in harmony. And you know how beautiful it is when you see things that working are working in, in harmony together. So the beauty of an orchestra, or if you're a sports fan, when you see like your favorite team or any team, even teams you don't like who are playing as one unit, like in basketball, we call it five as one. When five people are playing as one, um, Golden State Warriors most recently were the, were the best at this kind of in their heyday, five people playing as one, and you'd see it. It, it. It's not that, it's more than just good. It's beautiful. And the gift of the Lord is that all of these four core realities of your life can be working in harmony. 
That's what righteousness is. And this is the prescription that if we're going to experience peace, and if we're going to um, have the antidote to anxiety, this is the prescription. Personal integrity, spiritual integrity, social integrity. And then notice this last phrase in verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek him. That's the key. A whole generation, a whole people who seek his face. See, just like a vaccination for the COVID virus, it's not enough for just one person to have it. You need a whole generation to have it to flatten the curve. See, uh, one of the great challenges of the world we live in is we live in a generation that is marked. I think the defining mark of our age is ambient anxiety. It is the background music. Uh, it, is, it, it is the background music for everyone's life. And we all feel it and hear it. And that's why things like this can be so settling because it is the toxic gas that is in our atmosphere. So the whole question is, how can the Lord raise up a whole generation of people who seek his face and as a result are a generation of non-anxious people in an anxious world. So that's the goal. And that brings us to the third thing, how the presence that we can experience. All right, so you need to get the image in your mind. Actually, let's read it first, and then we'll put the image there. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So what you need is to have the image of an ancient city. The city is surrounded by a uh, giant wall. The king and the army have been away since they've been gone. The city has been on lockdown. The doors are shut. The gate is closed. No one in, no one out. It's been a season of intense fear and anxiety. The watchmen have been on the walls watching, straining to see from the distance. Can they tell? Can they? Is there a way that they can tell by the, the messengers who are running to and fro the battle lines, good news or bad news? And here the king and his whole army has returned. They have come and returned from battle and he is victorious and he's returning home and there's this celebration and there's a, a procession, and there's a ceremony. And so you have this cycle. Notice you have this cycle of formal request in verse 7 and 9, and then a question in 8 and 10, and then the celebratory answer that follows in 8 and 10. So the image is the king's herald, and the whole army has come to the gate. They've come to the wall, and then they announce, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. So they, they, they announce, Open up. The king has returned. He's come. Let him in. And then from the, the walls, the watchmen and the whole city, they respond back, Who is the king of glory? Who is it? Who should we let in? And then the entire army in a celebratory song announces, The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. And then it repeats. Lift up you gates. Open up. Who is the king of glory? 
the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So this is this great call that the King has returned home and he has been victorious. Now open up the gate so he can enter in and let the celebration begin. Now what's fascinating is that in the Septuagint, which the Septuagint is a third century from the third century BC, translation into Greek from um, of the Old Testament. So this is, it was, you know, 250 years uh, at least before Christ was born. For Psalm 24 in the Septuagint, it says a Psalm of David to be sung on the first day of the week. This is a song of David that should be sung on Sunday. And the church, as soon as Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, this became an Ascension Day psalm. So for the last 2,000 years on Ascension Day, where we celebrate the Lord's ascension into heaven, this has been the song that we sing. And if you actually want to see, so what this means is that ultimately this song is not, first of all, about how we can receive peace. It's a song celebrating the victory of the Prince of Peace. But actually, because it's a song celebrating his victory, we then can receive it. So this is a song about Christ's victory. This is the song that was sung when he ascended into heaven. And so what we actually see is that this psalm is about Jesus. He is the one of perfect integrity, both sp spiritual, physical, social. He is the ultimate one with clean hands and a pure heart. This psalm has all been fulfilled at the ascension. But this is not just a song of the ascension. It's also a song that celebrates the Advent. Or this is not just a song where he celebrate his ascension and his rule and reign. It's also a song that offers an invitation to experience his Advent. We're not just celebrating that he went up as victorious. He's also offering an invitation that he's coming down to restore us and to bring us with us, bring us with him. See, he is the one who has clean hands. But now his hands aren't just clean, they're nail pierced. And he extends them to all and says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. And we say, who are you? He says, open up the doors of your heart and let me enter in. You come to me, the king of glory. And it's only as we enter into his presence do we experience the true and ultimate antidote to our anxiety. This is the prescription for our peace. It is his presence. So do not neglect it. In this season where you have to physically isolate yourself, do not spiritually isolate yourself. Open up the doors of your heart so the king of glory can come in. The Prince of Peace will make you a person of peace. And this is the ultimate prescription for fear. Today is not just a day of anxiety. It also can be the day of salvation. Do not neglect the prescription that's meant to bring you peace.